You're listening to The Issues Podcast. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. This is an episode of The Issues Podcast with your hosts, Stephen Russ, Tom Brennan, and Martin Wickens. We had an interesting discussion recently. Um, we talked about what does the younger generation owe to the older generation? And that really got a lot of things moving with uh, questions and, and maybe, maybe a part two. And one of the discussions that we had in preparation for this was that uh, we've all had mentors and we've all had men who have who've invested in us, people who we've asked advice of. Um, and so that's the, the topic of the day is mentorship. And we're pleased to have another guest with us in the podcast studio this uh, for this recording. And uh, we want to introduce Dr. Arby Willette. And Brother Willette, thank you for setting aside some time today to talk to us. We, we are excited about this. Well, it's my great honor. I appreciate what you're doing. And uh, I am very grateful to be an encouragement anytime I get the chance. Well, we, we feel as if you have, have been encouragement to all of us in some way, whether through your writings, through your preaching, or through personal time spent with all of us. And so we appreciate that. Uh, I wondered if you could start by just maybe telling us a little bit of your testimony. And uh, I know that you, you did grow up in a preacher's home, but you also got saved at an early age. Share with us how God started your Christian journey. My dad heard the gospel for the first time when he was 21 years of age. It's a great testimony. I won't go into it now. And then I was born, that was 1949. He and my mother married in 1951. I was born in September of 1952. And my earliest memories are my dad being a pastor in Perry, Michigan, little town of 1200 outside of Lansing. And he would always preach and give an invitation. Uh, he would always say, is there anybody here who wants to trust Christ as their savior? And for some reason, I always raised my hand. Now, unwittingly, I was a great help to him because he would say, I see that hand. Are there others? <laughs> and uh, one night I was four years old, a, ventri a ventriloquist came to speak, and I don't remember a thing he said. I remember one of the little animals he used was a lion, but I got under conviction that night. I remember crying in my mother's dress, blue silk dress with white polka dots on it. And we, I didn't respond at the invitation in church, but we walked across the driveway to the parsonage. And my dad talked to me and asked me if I'd like to trust Christ as my Savior. I said yes. He sat me down in the old rocking chair, opened the Bible, shared the gospel. I accepted the Lord Jesus as my Savior. Amen. I remember it vividly. And today, uh, we have that rocking chair in one of our nurseries. My dad huh. had it recovered and presented it to us some years ago. And I still have the Lord Jesus. So I've been privileged to grow up in a preacher's home to have good godly instruction all of my life, good examples. Uh, my dad loved the ministry. He loved people. He loved serving God. To his dying day, a few days before his death, if I'd call him up, he always had something positive to say. He'd say, you know, it's amazing. And then he'd tell something the Lord had done, some blessing he'd come into, some opportunity he had to witness to somebody. Mm. I uh, got out of college. I married a few days later, became a youth pastor a few days after that. And two years after that, the Lord sent me to Bridgeport, where I pastored for 44 years. 
Amen. God did wonderful things in that church, and it's just doing so well under my pastor, Pastor J.D. Howell. But probably the most exciting thing to me is that they tell me some 200 or more young people have gone out into the Lord's work out of our church and our Christian school in those years. Mm. Wow. And and that that is something you started pastoring in, in 1975, I believe. Is that correct? That's, That's correct. Uh, yes, sir. And I've preached there. I don't know why I preached there. You asked me to preach there because I invited you. you. That's right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but it was it was awesome to see it, and uh, amazing to see how God is God is really carrying the work on under Brother Howell. I Amen. I appreciate him. He's a an awesome. He's he's older than me, but he's still a young man, and he's doing a wonderful job from from all uh, from everything that we can see. That's for sure. Uh, you've written several books. What got you into writing? I I, I think you're a prolific reader. Is that correct? Oh, yes. I love to read. My parents, one of the great things they taught me was the value of reading. Uh, I believe that Hallmark movies are one of the best occasions to read a book. (laughs) You're there, your wife's there, she's happy, and you're doing something of some value. Yes. (laughs) uh, The first book was called Living in an Imperfect World. It's now titled When You Can't Just Get Over It. Mm -hmm. And my heart was this. The new evangelicals were writing books that people were interested in. They were interested in the subject matter. But they didn't always give a biblical approach. Sometimes it was more psychology or, you know, human interest kind of things. And I I saw that our guys were writing almost all sermon books. Mm. I don't know anybody who sat down and read a sermon book, a book of sermons from cover to cover. Mm. I never have. I reference them. I read occasional sermons. So I wanted to write from a biblical perspective about issues that people cared about. Mm-hmm. And that's what the first book is about, depression, discouragement, injustice, insecurity, things that everybody's going to face sooner or later. So that's where Lord started that. My books are really like loaves and fishes. I taught a Bible study. I helped our people the best I could. I did my job. And then the Lord took that that I had done for our church and multiplied it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you've you've certainly helped us. And actually, the book you just referenced, um, I just finished using that recently here on Wednesday nights. I didn't use every topic, but uh, I referenced both the book you wrote and the the material that was written in lesson form on depression, discouragement, and disillusionment, and just very biblical. Uh, our people, you know, I tell you what, I get more comments when I preach your sermons than when I preach my sermons. So uh, I really appreciate the content. I did tell them where it came from, by the way, for well, those. You don't have to do it. The ancients have stolen our best thoughts. Ooh, that's good. <laughs> I like it. I know. I just wanted to make sure the the plagiarist police didn't come after me. Uh, so what are you what are you doing now? You're you're not retired because you're busier than ever, but you're continuing in the Lord's work. What does that look like? Well, I travel and preach. So I'm out every week preaching somewhere that I leave uh, Saturday tomorrow to go to Arizona through Wednesday and then California Thursday and Friday and then uh, South Carolina Sunday through Tuesday. Mm, amen. Well, thank you for your ministry, Brother Willette. And we really appreciate the opportunity to jump into a topic that means a lot to me. And I'll for a minute just say that the reason that your name came up in this regard is that all of us do have a respect for you. Um, we have seen that you've lived a life that's above reproach, and and that's certainly very meaningful to us. Um, but on the other hand, for me personally, you you have been a mentor, and 
probably at, at some of the darkest moments of my life. And I, I, I sometimes wonder if, if when you get a phone call from me that you wonder what problem I'm having. But genuinely, there have been some days where I've called and you've just said, well, the, the Bible says, and you share with me what the Bible says, and then you give me clear application and how that can be applied. So we got to talking about this idea of mentorship. And we thought we would get someone on the podcast who has done a good job being a mentor. But I'm sure that didn't start by being a mentor. I'm sure you had men in your life who helped mentor you. Would that be a fair statement? Oh, absolutely. Starting with my dad. Right. Yeah. How, how old were you when your dad passed away? Well, dad died four years ago, so I was 66. So essentially all of your ministry, he was available for lack of a better term. Yes. Yes. He was not able to be here for the transition. But um, he had passed away before that, but he had recorded some things that they were able to use on Transition Sunday. Oh, wow. wow that must That's have been wonderful. Are there any other men in your life that you can share with us who mentored you in a way that you still feel the effect of that? Absolutely. There was a pastor about an hour south of us named Paul Vanneman. He was about my dad's age. He pastored the Dixie Baptist Church. And I had him preach for us when I was a very young pastor. He and his wife came up. They brought gifts. They were kind. <laughs> Later on, he had me come down and preach for him. He would call me sometimes on a Monday if he was still excited about his Sunday sermon and re-preach it to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I took notes. And if I liked it, I was done studying for the week. Yeah, amen. <laughs> but he was one of the most practical and uh, down to earth and God loving men that I knew. He, uh, he didn't, he didn't like pretense. He didn't like fall draw. Uh, when I was given an honorary doctor's degree and he had had one for some years, he said, now, boy, let me tell you something. That doesn't put one person in the pews. It doesn't put one dollar in the offering plate. And he said, and that has never been in print with my name, unless somebody else put it there. Hmm. And I learned from that. I mean, I know some guys, the ink isn't dry in their honorary diploma before they change the sign out front. Hmm. And uh, I, I, I followed that. I never, I never put it in print. If somebody else does, they can, but uh, they, they, just because he was, he was real and genuine. He loved people. And he was a great example. Dr. Hiles was very kind and he would answer questions he would stay up later than you might imagine answering questions. Curtis Hudson was one of the clearest thinkers that I ever knew and had tremendous insight. It was very, very gracious to answer my questions and talk to me. And uh, with many of those men, I hated to go to bed. I'd rather stay up and ask questions of them. <laughs> Les Olala uh, was a tremendously wise man. And uh, I, I've known him since I was a teenager. And he would often give me good insights. So he was the one who first told me that questions stir the conscience, but accusations harden the will. And when he said that, it was like, wow, I thought, yeah, that's what God did in the Garden of Eden. He asked three questions. He knew all the answers, obviously, but he was stirring the conscience of Adam and Eve. And I'm sure there are many others that I should mention as I go along, but those are the ones that pop to the front of my mind immediately. What are the sort of questions? Um, especially when you were relatively new in the ministry, what are the sort of questions you would have asked 
you know, your mentors? What, what sort of things caused you to go to them and seek advice and counsel and perspective? Usually when I had trouble. I remember calling Dr. Vanneman one time, and I don't remember all the issues. I had a deacon whose wife was doubting her salvation. I had a, a deacon's wife that was starting to use prescription drugs. I had several issues like that. And I thought, I wasn't upset, but I thought, you know, this church has grown beyond me. I'm going to have to mm-hmm. go someplace smaller and start over. And I called Dr. Vanneman, and I told him all that list of things. And he said, well... Sounds like a normal church to me. (laughs) And just his uh, kind of relaxed, you know, these things happen attitude was a great encouragement to me. So I'd usually call when I had problems or when I was facing an important decision. Uh, Which which lawyer did I need to use for our court case? I had tremendous pressure put on me when we had our court case. I was 28 or so when it started and 27, I think, when it first started. And my pastor, Walt Hanford, wanted me to use William Ball, the best constitutional lawyer in the country at that time. And then we had supported CLA and David Gibbs. And uh, I love Brother Gibbs. He's a dear personal friend. And I, I was getting pressure. I remember Roy Thompson, who was another good mentor of mine. Roy Thompson was a tough guy. And when I called him about it, he said, well, William Ball's not my kind of guy. He's a Catholic. (laughs) David Gibbs is my kind of guy. I thought you were my kind of guy. Well, maybe you're not. (laughs) Maybe you should use William Ball. (laughs) So I called my dad. And dad said, son, stop reasoning. Hmm. Oh, that was powerful. We love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, but we miss the part that says, and lean not unto thine own understanding. Commit it to the Lord for seven days, and at the end of seven days, you'll know what to do. Colossians Hmm. 3.15, let the peace of God rule in your heart. I did, and uh, God gave us grace to make the right decision, and I've never looked back and never regretted what we did. So times of crisis, times of decision-making, times of problems would be the things that caused me to reach out to my mentors. I would often ask about their devotional life. Uh, just mm. getting ideas how dis- different people walked with the Lord and developed themselves spiritually. Did you find some of the mentoring kind of besides the times of, of crisis? And it was interesting, Stephen mentioned that at the beginning, but in hindsight, a lot of the mentoring was just living alongside them. I mean, especially your father, it was just seeing how they lived life and reacted to situations. Um, is that something you kind of found as well? Absolutely. That's very insightful. I love what it says in Deuteronomy. Teach them when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed at night, and when you're by the way. My dad was a great by the way teacher. Mm. He was always sharing thoughts and insights with me. When I pastored, we'd have a staff meeting every Thursday morning because I was usually back in town by then. And we'd go around and they would ask calendar questions and other questions. But things would pop up that would stir something in my mind. And then I would share an idea or a truth or a philosophy. And I think that was probably, and, the, and according to the guys, I think they would say that too, some of the more effective times of teaching that we did were the by-the-way times. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. When did you notice in your own personal life the the shift from going to being the mentored to being the mentor? Um, there had to have been somewhat of a, I'm sure there was a, a period of time there, but did you notice a distinct shift where you started getting more people coming to you than maybe you were going to other people? 
Well, that's pretty gradual. What I do remember was I'm maybe 35 years old, 32, somewhere in there. And preachers started calling me to ask me questions about serious issues that would have (laughs) tremendous consequences. And I thought, I don't want to be responsible for what happens in that guy's church. I'm not (laughs) smart enough to know the answer to that. And so I did two things. I would say, well, I'll tell you what they told me when I asked the same question, but I'll leave out the parts that didn't work. (laughs) And then I, I remember mentioning it to Dr. Hiles, and he agreed with me that I shouldn't take that weight of responsibility. And he told me to say to people, well, I'm not sure what you ought to do. You need to seek the mind of the Lord on that. But here is what I would probably consider if I were in your situation. Mm. And I still say that. I I never liked the idea that if I'm going to give you advice, you have to do everything I say. Yeah, I don't think that's... If I do anything I say, I'll probably give my advice to somebody else. But I certainly don't think that everything I say is, you know, from Mount Sinai etched in stone. But I would say it happened gradually over time. But but I would say this, I'm 70 years old and there are still things I don't know. And there's still situations that other people know more about than I do. And I am very frequently asking people for advice, asking people for information. The man may be younger than me. My dear friend, Dr. Paul Chappell is nine and a half years younger than me, but I've taken advice from him on many occasions. He's had such great experience. He's pastored a much larger church than I ever did. And he grew up in a preacher's home as a, a very good background of truth. And so there are many, many things I'll ask him about. So you mentioned that, that you know, as a mentor, you, you cannot or should not expect the person you're counseling to do everything you say that, that is not a healthy relationship. And then you follow that up by saying, but if they never do what I say, I probably won't essentially continue to invest in them. And I think that's a good balance. What are some other things from your perspective as a mentor uh, that help you identify or determine whom you're going to mentor and whom you're going to hold at somewhat of a distance? Well, I think that all of these relationships are healthiest if they have a natural birth. Mm. My relationship with you, Brother Brennan, started when your parents in Port Huron gave me one of your books. And the first one I didn't read. I get given a lot of books. I've gone back and read. The second one I read, and it was phenomenal. It was the one on Schizophrenic Baptist. And it was kindly written. It was honest. It was biblical. It was insightful. And so I think I either called you or sent you a letter or something and told you I appreciated it. I remember you said that not many people had done that. And it, it was uh, something you would see. That was a natural beginning uh, with Brother Ross I've known him since he was very young. I preached for his grandpa and his dad. And I always try to be nice to preachers' kids. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mm-hmm. take much, and it means mm-hmm. a lot. And hardly anybody pays any attention to the preacher's kids. Uh, I don't think Brother Russell and I would have the friendship we have today if I hadn't been kind to him when he was a little boy. I and uh, always valued him and always treated him. And, and by the way, uh, as he as he grew just a little bit, he was a high school student running youth rallies. And uh, mm-hmm. his potential was obvious. So I think it's a natural beginning. I think that um, some people click better than others. 
I think there not only needs to be uh, agreement on doctrine and basic philosophy of ministry if you're going to be a, a helpful mentor, but I think that the best relationships are one where the people enjoy each other. Um, I, I watch out for people that are always negative mm. and everything. I don't mind that you call me every time there's a problem, but I don't like the people that the glass is always half empty and the sky is always falling and everything's coming down. I just don't think that's biblical. I think it says rejoice in the Lord. Amen. I think the word blessed means happy. And when the Lord Jesus told us all the things that we could be blessed if we did, he's telling us how to be happy. So I like to hang around people who like the ministry. Yeah. And I like to hang around people that like the people they serve. Amen. Yeah. Wow. And, and by the way, going back to what you said earlier about not expecting someone to do everything that you tell them they should do. Or, and by the way, there's a lot of by the ways here. When I call Brother Willette, there's a format and it always begins with the Bible says. I don't think I've ever asked advice to where I've not received that answer. Then generally he will say, based on what the Bible says, I think you could do one of two or three things. And he'll rattle those things off so fast that I wish I'd recorded the conversation and I have to ask him to repeat himself and, and he'll say, but whatever the Lord leads you to do, brother, I'll be praying for you. And I've had the other side of that. I've had it where it's, I call it cookie cutter, where it's like, look, you know, here's what you need to do. And there's, there's not an option here. And obviously in areas of doctrine, I think there's some room for that kind of advice. But, um, but it's so helpful when I walk away feeling like I can make my own decision. I think that's invaluable. But the mm -hmm. birth of a, a relationship, you're correct. It, it, it can't be forced. I, I'm not going to go seek advice from someone who, quite frankly, doesn't hold the same ministry philosophy or the same spirit or at least a positive spirit. We've got to have that. So you don't just decide someone is going to be your mentor or you're going to mentor them because that can lead to issues that can lead to problems. But for a younger man, Say there's younger men out there, and I know they're gonna we're gonna get this question because I get it a lot. Um, they'll say something like, you know, well, Stephen, you've had opportunity to be around these guys, and and I never had that opportunity. I I didn't have the background you have, or I didn't uh, have the uh, ability to to speak to uh, Brother Willett or or others. So, how does someone who doesn't have a mentor, who doesn't feel like he knows anybody, doesn't feel like there's a place to start, how do they get started? What's the first thing they should look for? What, what can they do? Well, I, uh, many of my mentorships started when I had somebody had to preach for me. Mm -hmm. And obviously I valued them and their ministry. I wouldn't have invited them to come. And then as we got together a little bit, it opened the door for me to call them at other times, ask questions, have a relationship with them. I have mentored some people or at least advised some people. A mentor, I looked it up because I knew he was doing this podcast, is a trusted advisor. That's the dictionary definition. And I've advised people who just called me up out of the blue. I never knew who they were. And they talked to me and I tried to help them and try to be gracious to them. And I don't think that if a man is unwilling to help somebody he doesn't know, that he deserves to be anybody's mentor. Mm. I think we have been given truth by God, by his word and by our 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 previous generation. It is our responsibility to pass on that truth. We've had, we had an evangelist here one time and we asked a lot of questions. I did my staff and he kind of laughed at us and he didn't like it and he didn't enjoy answering the questions. And, uh, you know, that's his prerogative. He didn't, we didn't, we asked him to come preach and he preached after that we're even, but we didn't have him back. Mm 
because he didn't seem to have a heart to invest in us and our staff and to help us. So if a young man doesn't have any mentors, he could send a note, he could send a text, he could direct message somebody on Twitter uh, or some other social media platform. And he could say, you don't know me, but I'm pastoring here. You've been a blessing. And I wonder if you take a moment to give me your thoughts on this. Mm-hmm. And if the guy doesn't do that, obviously, he's not one of the guys that's going to be your mentor. And some people are way too busy for it. I have a great preacher friend. I won't name him because I would never want to hurt him in any way. He never answers emails from people he doesn't know. <laughs> and and he's, he's less techy than I am, and I barely function. But he just, that's a world he doesn't want to enter into, you know. Yeah. And I get that. Uh, but, but the young preacher can have a number of ways. He could meet somebody at a meeting. He could talk to him afterwards. He could thank him for the message. He could say, would it be possible if I had a question for me to email or call you and ask what you thought about it? And the response will give him a good idea whether that man's open to it or not. Mm-hmm. I think the I think whole idea helpful. of a response. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Martin. No, I was just going to say, I think it's helpful, but, you know, the approach of you have to be deliberate. You have to reach out and initiate that the relationship of saying, hey, I, I need to know, I need help. That takes humility, and a lot of young people don't have it. But then you kind of want that natural connection afterwards, and you're looking for that um, kind of natural birth, like you said, to the relationship when you find someone who you just click with. Yeah, and also one other thought is you kind of have to be thick-skinned. Brother will let your story about the gentleman who told you, you know, this is my kind of guy, and I thought you were my kind of guy. Maybe you're not. <laughs> I do. I do feel as if there are a lot of people who would be like, "Well, I'm not going to ask him a question." That that actually makes me chuckle. I like the direct approach, and some people don't. But you have and to. By the way, Roy Thompson was my dear friend until the day of his death. Right. Oh, that was that was evident by what you were saying. But had you been thin skinned, you might have walked away from that, taking it the wrong way. And I, I don't know. That's just a little plug for guys my age, maybe to toughen up a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, a lot of buttercups out there need to toughen Uh-oh. up. Uh-oh. Come on now. <laughs> Tom, no you say something? I was thinking about the, uh, what he brought up about the whole uh, I, idea of having a positive response, and maybe he phrased it probably better than I just did. But when you reach out to someone as a younger man, uh, to someone that you want their advice and counsel and perspective, if they don't respond or they respond very slowly, uh, sometimes they do that on purpose as a barrier with the mindset of, I want to make sure this guy is investable. But I don't think that happens as much because generally speaking, if a man is in the ministry, and this is a ministry-oriented podcast, this particular podcast, if a man is in the ministry, he's investable in my mind and because I think he's investable in God's mind. Um, but if there's not that positive response, if you don't get answers, if you don't get responses, if then then you've got to move on and find somebody who does. Right. Uh, it's a little bit like dating. I remember getting that advice in, in college as Ask one of my professors about who, what do I look for in someone I date? He said a positive response. It sounded <laughs> simple, but it was actually very helpful. And that's why you and I never dated very much. <laughs> you were doing so well till you put the very much in there. <laughs> um, I was thinking that in terms of us responding to people coming to us for counsel, because I know I've, I've faced that transition over the last few years and um, we I think have a responsibility to invest in others because if a young person is looking for help and they don't get it from us, they're just going to go somewhere else. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And would you guys say, go ahead, brother. That's one reason we have lost some young men. Older men have been unkind to them. 
Mm-hmm. And they've made big issues of little issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, looks like y'all have facial hair. I'm not against it. That's in the Bible. There was an era where it was a bad testimony uh, 40 years ago. It's not that way now. But when young men started to grow goatees, a lot of my older friends and friends my age got very upset about it. Mm-hmm. And they'd make snide comments, you know, did you forget your razor? And what's that dirt on your face and stuff like that. And uh, I would say to them, hey, if your young friend gets up with a goatee and no necktie on a Wednesday night and preaches out of his King James Bible and tells you about the people he led to Christ last week, leave him alone. Mm-hmm. Don't pick at him about stuff like that. I had a man say to me one time, his uh, brother-in-law was one of our missionaries and he had gone a, a, a direction we couldn't support. And I, I kept him on for six months to give him time to replace the support. And I, I talked to the brother-in-law who was the pastor and we had a long conversation. And when we got done, I'll never forget what he said. Brother Willette, if I'd met somebody like you while I was still in fundamentalist, fundamentalism, I'd probably still be a fundamentalist. Mm-hmm. I say, if a guy's leaning out of the boat, try to pull him back in. Don't push him in the water. Mm-hmm. And okay. uh, try to help people. You may not succeed, but try. And, and be nice and be kind and give them room to be different than you and still be a, a servant of God. And I do believe we could keep more of our young men if we were just kind and attentive to them. Uh, yeah. Amen. And that's, I really, I really believe that one of the reasons that I'm still in the same position that I am is because the men who mentored me were not only right, they were kind. And those two things really shouldn't be exclusive from one another. They should be always present. Now, you know, I understand the the whole statement of I'd rather have a, um, you know, a right position and a wrong disposition than a right disposition and a wrong position. But that suggests that you can't have both. Exactly. Yeah. Right. I always say if you have to choose between the right position and the right disposition, don't. Because <laughs> yeah. both are commanded by God. I was just reading the other day in Colossians, it says, above all, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. I looked into that above all. Well, that doesn't mean if you can only pick one of these things, do this one. It means this should be the final layer of the garment, which is what everybody sees. Yeah. Yeah. The word there is the belt that holds everything together. You know, it'd be like a policeman's belt and has all his implements on it or a workman's tool belt. And that's a, that is a great point. Well, and that, that leads great. me to I a don't question. Have to do sermon preparation this weekend. That's, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> that leads me to somewhat of a, a question that may be relevant here. It's not necessarily planned, but have you ever been mentored by someone who did not hold a um, conviction that you held, but they helped you in an area? Oh, sure, absolutely. How do you manage uh, that? Well, I I didn't expect that all my mentors would agree with me on every minor or little issue. Uh, Paul Vanneman did music that I wouldn't have done. Mm. And he was, uh, he was an early guy to some, uh, you know, some fairly extreme gospel country type of music. And, uh, and he just said to me, I like it. <laughs> and he said, people in the pew can relate to it. Now, I never felt that that disqualified him. Paul Venman loved God. And he, he would give me great insights to scripture and great insights to human nature. I was in a motel room with him and another guy. We'd been to Washington and visited all these 
politicians and gone to White House briefings and all this stuff. And it was late. And I'm reading my Bible. The other guy's reading his Bible. Paul Vanneman has his Bible open on his lap and he's just looking at it. And it's like he's the only person in the room. And tears fill his eyes and he says, blessed old book, precious old book. Well, I'm not going to let a couple of things where I would be more careful than he is. Rob me of the benefit of somebody who loves God and his word like Paul Vanneman did. Mm. And okay, so let's let's just go there. How do you handle that? Okay, when a when a mentor, it's one thing when a leader lets you down. It's another thing when a mentor lets you down. How do you keep from being disillusioned? And I feel that disillusionment is perhaps the vice of my generation. We're very disillusioned as a as a group of you know, whether you millennials, Gen Z, whatever you want to lump us in at. Um, but there were some men, and you you mentioned some of them who you would say were very kind to you. They had good qualities. Uh, they taught you things. They're not viewed fondly anymore. Matter of fact, they're viewed maybe with great vitriol, vitriol or or hatred even from my generation. Um, I'm sure you saw some of the same things that my generation sees in them. What allowed you to glean from them and not throw the baby out with the bathwater? Years ago, I, I began studying J. Frank Norris. He died the year I was born. And I could not understand him. He seemed to have great blessing from God. Mm-hmm. Amazing ministry. 10,000 people on a Sunday night when he was in Fort Worth, pastored two amazing churches at the same time, one in Detroit, one in Fort Worth, Texas. And he was mean and he was harsh. And I asked Dr. Monroe Parker about him. And old Monroe Parker smiled and he said, well, he was two men. And as soon as he said that, it clicked with me because I am two men. Amen. Part of me loves God, loves the word of God, loves the people of God. Part of me is an absolute jerk. <laughs> Part of me wants to shove everybody off the road with a V-shaped plow if they're not going fast enough. And uh, I'm always amazed at my ability to be a jerk. <laughs> you know, the Lord speaks to me often and typically he says, well, let, you're an idiot. <laughs> and, and then he went on to say, Part of J. Frank Norris loved God and loved the souls of men and part of him pulled stunts nobody should have pulled. Yeah. Was Jacob good or bad? Hmm. Yes. Mm -hmm. I don't like Jacob. Nothing about his persona, his character, his behavior draws me to him. But he had power with God. And the Bible says, Jacob, have I loved. So I say it this way. Great men are often greatly flawed. May we who learn from them seek neither to diminish their greatness nor to imitate their flaws. Mm Mm-hmm. If I go to a track meet and a guy runs a 100-yard dash in 9.8 seconds and I go down to congratulate him and discover that he has an artificial leg, my response will not be, well, I'm not cheering for you. you got a wooden leg. Mm-hmm. It'll be, wow, you ran, ran an amazing race with that handicap. Nor will my response mm-hmm. be to go back and cut my leg off. Mm-hmm. I won't run a race any better because I imitate your flaws. I have enough of my own flaws. I don't need to take on those of those who have led me, mentored me, and advised me. It is that inability that is at the heart of much of the trouble in our society today. Mm. 
We can't say George Washington was wrong to own slaves. It was evil to own slaves. It was wrong for one person to own another. It was abominable. You cannot obey the golden rule and be a slave owner. You can't obey the basic principles of the Bible and own slaves. But George Washington was a great man. He did tremendous good for our country. He was a phenomenal leader. He had amazing character. We could learn much from him in many other areas. Now, the strange thing is that the woke crowd is willing to do that with their heroes, but not with anybody else's. Martin Luther King was right in his speech, I have a dream. I don't, I'm not aware of one thing he said in that speech that I would disagree with. He was right that black and white people should have equal access to housing and riding the bus and all of that. He had moral failures in his life. I would not hold him up as a person I wanted to imitate in my personal life. But the things he said about race and about race relations were valid. And if you can't do that, you're going to find there's only about three people in the world you can learn from, and that circle will get smaller every couple of months. <laughs> Reminds me of that. I can't remember who said it, but the uh, the best of men are still but men. Yes. And so many individuals in the Bible, all of them, I mean, they're all flawed people. And it's a reflection that God is gracious that he'd still use any of us. Amen. Yeah. And it, you know, that's something that I hope that people that I've had a chance to learn from that I remember about them when I think of them. I had two mentors, one in high school, one in college. And in some sense, each of them has disappointed me. And I'm quite sure that I've disappointed <laughs> them more than they've disappointed me. But, you know, I hope that I remember that when, when, I deal with my mentors in my mind, but I also hope that the people that I try to help remember that about me. And yeah. I think some of that is also reaping and sowing. I think the way we, we deal with other people, uh, I, I think we, we, we get that back. And when we are charitable, when we are gracious, when we, when we seek to be, be that blend Jesus was in John chapter one of grace and truth, I believe that we reap that. And uh, I hope Amen. I will. And, I, and I, hope I, I hope I can be that way. That's good counsel. My dad counseled me. I had an assistant pastor who had ignored my direct instruction and blew up a motor on a bus. I said, fill the oil if you're going to use that. There was a sign on the key chain that said, don't use no oil. And he ignored it and he blew the motor up and he wasn't even repentant. He's <laughs> like, oh, yeah. And I wanted to kill him. <laughs> and I called my dad, and my dad quoted a verse that said, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that I'm sure people have felt that way about me many times. Um, should a younger man, and this is this is an interesting question, Tom, maybe you can expound on this. How do you how do you set boundaries in your mentor relationships as the one being mentored? And maybe when you put that down, Tom, were you thinking specifically getting advice in areas you're not asking for it in? Yeah, there has to be some, yeah, not boundaries in the sense of I don't want to have a close relationship with you, but boundaries in the sense of uh, you don't want to turn your brain over unchecked to someone and say, whatever you tell me to do, I'll do. And there's also has to be some sense of I need advice. So when I go, when I hire a lawyer, I go see a lawyer. I don't want to get medical advice from a lawyer. I want to get legal advice. And and so there's a sense in which you develop this relationship and you seek to pursue this relationship as someone who's looking for a mentor. 
And then sometimes it gets close and then they start to put their fingers in something that you don't really want them to deal with. Now, if it was the Holy Spirit, that'd be a different matter, but it's not. And for your own reasons, you would prefer that they stay out of it. How do you, I guess, you know, this is a question that came to me when I brought this up with some other, with some other men. And this is something a young man said, how do I keep boundaries on my mentor? And he probably, you know, I, I don't know what he had in mind, but that was sort of the thought, if that makes sense. Well, the first thing is that the mentor should be careful not to give unsolicited advice. When I go to a church, I may see a few things that I would do differently, but if the pastor does not ask me, I do not tell him. He asked me to preach. I preach for even. If I get a motel room to stay in, that's a bonus. If he pays my plane ticket, that's a plus. If he gives me an offering, that's a blessing. But that's all he asked me to do was to come preach. And I have no right, in my opinion, to judge his ministry and to tell him what to do unless he asks. So that's the job of the mentor to respect that and not to give unsolicited advice. My pastor said to me when he became pastor, if you ever see me doing anything that you think is stupid, I hope you'll tell me. Right. And I said, I probably won't. It would have to be really bad. You need to ask me. But if you have a mentor that doesn't respect that, then what I would tell the young young pastor, young person to do is just to say thank you and ignore mm. it and then go to that person less often in the future. If, it, if, it, if it's a habit, if it's a pattern, then you just don't call them up. You call somebody else. So you don't think that there's ever, and maybe ever is too strong of a term, you know, as you build a close relationship with someone that you're pouring your life into, where as the mentor, you're saying you don't ever go to them and bring something up that you think they need to hear, and you believe based upon your relationship they would be willing to hear would be receptive about. I, I do it rarely and carefully. Uh, there was a man who had been very kind to me. He put my picture up on the hallway of his church with other preachers and very kind, and I loved him and his family still do. And he was having a, a rather strong new evangelical in for a meeting, a man that would preach at Episcopalian churches, you know, a lot of places we wouldn't go. And I called him up and I said, may I talk to you about something that is none of my business? Hmm. And he said, yes. So he gave me permission. And so then I gave him an analogy about what was going on. And I said, you know, you wouldn't want your young people to attend the churches where that man preaches. But if you have him in, you're opening all those relationships as influences on your people. He did cancel that man. I did not succeed in helping him stay on the path that he was originally on, but he would still be a friend. Somebody told me a few years ago that he said about me, brother will let We'll be honest with you if you ask him a question, but if you don't do what he says, he'll still love you and still be your friend. And I think we mm -hmm. all have to do that. I think that's just basic, decent Christianity. Brother Willette, have you ever had a time where one of your mentors stepped across the line and, and you had to draw back or um, handle it graciously? I had a man who was about a half hour south of me and very smart and uh, probably 10 years older than me. And I would go to him for advice, and he, he had a lot of good advice. But two things happened. One, he started having some strange advice. He said to me, 
well, you hear about all these preachers committing adultery, but he said, for everyone who commits adultery, there are 10 who are proud. And for everyone who are proud, there are 10 others who compromise. And those 100 compromising preachers and 10 proud preachers do far more harm to the work of God than the one who commits adultery. And I thought that was strange. It drove me to study the Bible and find out that adultery is a special sin with special consequences in both the Old and the New Testament. The second thing that happened was that I learned his secretary said to me one day, oh, yeah, um, the preacher said about you, he's one of my boys. He'll do whatever I say. Hmm. And I was happy to take advice from him, but I was not happy to commit myself to do anything he said. So in that circumstance, I just tiptoed away. Mm-hmm. I was not You're unkind. Able. I didn't, didn't sever a relationship. I just didn't call him anymore. Yeah. Yeah, it stands out to me that, you know, throughout this conversation, it, how much the right spirit makes a difference, you know, yeah, giving counsel with the right spirit. And I love the way you initiated that conversation uh, you mentioned a moment ago. Um, but by the same token, the one receiving counsel needs to receive it with humility. And and uh, and, and then if there's disagreement, uh, like what you said there about tiptoeing away, uh, and I think that's kind of rare today. There are so many things that blow up that could be handled with a lot more meekness and fear. And uh, so I, I think that's that's a help to me, you know, and I, I appreciate what you've said. I think social media turns a lot of people into junior high debaters. They just <laughs> want to score yeah. points. They just want to look smart. I agree. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think I think some of that is that's what we see, and we don't see all of the wisdom and that's being practiced behind the scenes. We just see sure. what we see. And so that sense of, well, this generation is worse than before. And, you know, in some senses, I agree with that, you know, as a just, just you know, looking at things biblically. But I think there's a whole lot of good and a whole lot of wisdom that is operated and extended that we never see. And that's why, that's why we never see it. I'm extremely encouraged as I travel the country with the state of a lot of our young preachers. A lot of good, solid, God-loving guys. And there are many good changes that have come into independent Baptist circles the last 20 years. We're far less likely to make a a relationship on the basis of where you went to college or what fellowship you belong to. And more likely to make a a relationship on commonalities and what we agree upon. I think it's good. Uh, We're far more committed to preach the Word of God than we used to be. Amen. Um, Amen. Bob Jones Sr., if you read his sermons... He just read a text and then said what he wanted to say. And it was right. It was in the Bible somewhere, but it wasn't where, where he read his text from. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of that out there and God used it. Brother Hiles said to me when I was a young man, I was 35. He said, well, it's not always a preacher's job to preach the word. Sometimes you preach the word, sometimes you exhort, sometimes you rebuke. And, and I, I uh, didn't agree with his scriptural analysis there. I said, to myself, I said, well, the verse starts with preach the word and ends with doctrine. So it's kind of all bound up in the word of God. All those things in between have to be from the word. But I just said, well, preacher, that works well for you. You have a biblical philosophy of life. And and at that time, I would have said that all of his sermons were somewhere in the Bible. Maybe later on, I would have had some questions about some of that. But, but I said, but at my age and my stage in the ministry, I need the authority of the word of God behind me when I stand up to preach. Well, I'm exactly twice that age now. I'm 70 years old. And at my age, 
at my stage in the ministry, I need the authority of the word of God behind me when I stand up to preach. Amen. And I think we're much Amen. more committed to that. I, I see a lot of very good things out there in the work of God. Amen. How how do you or how did you as your ministry grew? Because your ministry grew relatively quickly and you know, you got opportunities to speak. I don't mean that begrudgingly. You had those opportunities and you and then Lord brought writing to you and other things. And and when you do that, then opportunities to mentor come your way. How do you balance that priority wise as a mentor? Uh, time-wise, I think you understand what I'm asking. I have been very unsuccessful at figuring all those things out. Mm -hmm. I just get up every day and try to figure what God wants me to do that day and do it. Mm -hmm. And I, I, there were times I'd stay up quite late talking to somebody and uh, it might affect my ministry a little bit the next day. But in the long run, the Lord just helped it sort of even out. So I, I would be a bad one to talk to about that. I'm not, every time I thought I had my schedule figured out, the Lord would say, good, now I want you to add this. <laughs> and I'd say, Lord, I just got that figured out. And it was like the Lord would say, yeah, you had it figured out. I don't want you living by your figures. I want you living by faith. Amen. And it's not a bad thing to get up and say, Lord, I can't get all this done. You got to help me. It right. makes you walk in the spirit and not in the day planner. It's funny because when, when we approached Tom Brennan about podcasting, he was in the middle of writing an article for his blog about why he hated podcasts. And Amen. now we eat up all of his time with podcasting. So that's, uh, that, that's especially close to home for him. Well, I think, I think we've gleaned a lot from this, and I know I have. Um, Brother Ouellette, could you tell us a little bit about how we can pray for you now? And I, I know that your your health is doing better. Is that correct? Yes. Good. Well, Good. I, I had a tumor on my larynx, and they treated it with radiation and chemotherapy. I was off the road for eight weeks. God wonderfully took care of me and a very, very gracious God. He's been very good to me in every way. And then three months after the treatments ended, I had a scan and a scope and they said that there was no sign of cancer. So I'm just praying my voice will continue to improve. I go back in uh, March or April and they, they, they've said they may give me a shot of Botox at that time. <laughs> uh, which apparently is a vocal treatment. And I've, I've wanted Botox ever since I saw Nancy Pelosi. <laughs> but uh, just pray that God keeps me strong and keeps me straight. We'll do it. Well, yeah. thank you for your time today. It's been invaluable and we know it's a sacrifice. And so we will, we will conclude this uh, discussion today by just saying a big thank you to you and our prayers are with you, sir. It's my honor and I enjoyed it very much. Thank you, sir. God bless. Mm -hmm.